0: We've been about this work diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King. To cover news, tips from colleagues and hosts, incredible guests, listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it, check it, Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Uh,
1: Shots fired.
0: Shots fired. Listen. Let's get down to business. I, I'm what? absolutely, fu- I'm 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 furious because when I think about the Tesla story that we covered um, a couple of weeks ago, you remember, and you had to correct me. I actually thought mm-hmm. it was 130 million. You said 137 million. I stepped out of place and tried to correct you. You were like, "Nah, sit yep. back. Let me correct you." And and I stand corrected. 137 million oh, dollar that. award. It went to Mr. Owen Diaz for the treatment that he received in the plant. I'm sorry. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. How you doing? Um, And so.
1: Hi. Hi. Nice to see you.
0: Actually. No, let me tell you. I actually. There's a saying in the community. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. But there's a saying in the black community that everyone your color is not your kind. You ever heard that before? I have not. Jay, you never heard that? Okay. It's a good one. Everyone your color is not your kind. Today, uh, I am going to highlight one Valerie Capers from Tesla. Okay. Now, I don't know, as uh, I'm pulling up my text, uh, as our dear friend, Kimberly Jones, and we both love Kimberly Jones. Kimberly Jones says you are either an accomplice or a hostage. That's what Kimberly says. The Queen says you are either an accomplice Ooh, or a hostage. Damn. Valerie Capers, she put out a statement after the jury awarded Owen Diaz's $137 million. The very first thing she says is: Mr. Diaz never worked for Tesla. He was a contract employee who worked for city staff. I know I'm not going to get any speaking engagements, any consulting opportunities. None of that's going to come from Tesla. And I don't give two flying flags like I absolutely don't. Because what pisses me off is that how are you going to try to distinguish between his employment status when the assholes that were calling him names and racial slurs? They work for Tesla.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And if they didn't work for Tesla, then you all should have got rid of city staff. And said, we need another partner or we need to have you reprimand the people that you are sending. But how do you try to defend Tesla when this dude looks exactly like you going through things that really impact you? Like if you see the N word on a wall. Yeah. They're not just talking to Owen Diaz. They're talking to all of y'all in the joint. Make sense?
1: Yep. Yeah, especially when let's let's say that Valerie's uh, title makes it especially impactful because she's the VP of people at Tesla. And
0: we didn't get to that. Absolutely. In charge of Absolutely. HR,
1: in charge of talent acquisition, in charge of DEI. Ooh, OK.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. that's some fire. Yeah. Absolutely. And then it goes on and I'll let you all read it. You can you can find it. Um they, the the blog post is actually on Tesla's website regarding today's jury verdict. That's the title of it. It's from October fourth of this year. You know, I'm not making it up. I'm not making this up. I don't. I don't make things up. I'm not hyperbolic. I'm. I'm just literally frustrated. I think the last couple of weeks I've started the show frustrated. January 6th, Tesla. Like somebody always yeah. is like drawing at the blood, the, like the. And so she goes on to say. While we strongly believe that these facts don't justify the verdict reached by the jury in San Francisco, we do recognize that in 2015 and 2016, we were not perfect. Really?
1: <laughs> why did she Why did she even put out a statement? Like, what the fuck is even the point?
0: Oh my God. Uh, so anyway, we got yeah, something good to talk about. Well how how you feel yeah yeah how you feel? how do you feel? you see how yeah. i feel how do you feel
1: i yes i well i i am on the other hand you're usually my my cheer up guy. I am great, just enjoying Good. December enjoying the end of the year and yeah love- loving this time with my family
0: absolutely i uh think that we you know i'm going through a little bit with my family um Unfortunately, and it's not one of those situations where uh, we get to celebrate, you know, uh, I won't go into it, but it's just one of those things where I had to get all of my cousins on a call a couple of weeks back and said, listen, when we navigate this, we have to do better as a unit. We have everything that we need in our family to be strong, to undergird one another. We have to be better and do better as a unit. So while I know we are moving through this scenario during this holiday season, I'm absolutely, absolutely optimistic that it will end in a way that um, is promising. Kind of like our guest, because that's what she does. She actually installs and presents Promise. So let's just take a quick break and then let's get to Miss Kim Rice. Actually, you know what? We're going to do it a little bit differently. Let's take a break and then we'll get to Miss Kim Rice.
2: My name is Kim Rice. I am from Fresno, California, Lexington, Kentucky, Norman, Oklahoma, New Orleans, Louisiana, and now home in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm an artist, and I create work on the white race because I believe that it is our job uh, in our own small space in this world to do something to fight against social injustice.
1: All right. All right. So, Torin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe art is a big part of your life. Is that a fair statement?
0: Art is absolutely a big part of my life. And uh, in the fr- it's, been, it's the first time, it's like absolutely the first time we've ever let a guest introduce themselves. Uh, that's because I really, really, really enjoy uh, Kim's artwork. But why'd you ask that? And then let's get Kim in the conversation.
1: So I just remember a couple trips down to like the Keys or Palm Springs or something related to celebrating some some amazing artwork, and you were emceeing or or at least a guest that you loved doing a couple years ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It it really. I mean, honestly, it really is. And the way that I found um, my love for art was literally sitting outside of a coffee shop. Here in Baltimore and this guy by the name of Jeffrey Kent walked by me and he said, wow, that's a nice dress shirt, literally. And from that comment, we talked for 15, 20, 30 minutes, something of the sort, ended up going by his studio and now we have this relationship spanning at this point 17 almost 18 years and as a result of our relationship I was introduced to Kim and so you can find Kim her social handles on IG are Kim Rice artist and on the web she's at Kim welcome Kim to crazy and the king how are you
2: I'm great thanks for having me
0: Absolutely. And so I want to get right to it. Why racism? You know, in your introduction, you said it. So I want to know, why do you do large scale pieces that address institutionalized and systemic racism? Why that?
2: So, um, I think that white people have not played the part that they need to play in um, dealing with racism. If you look at how the United States was built, uh, it was built for white people by white people and policies that um, benefit white people. And so when we talk about race, usually white people see themselves as like the universal norm or not linked to race. And like, like race is, you know, um, a black person's problem, a brown person's problem, somebody from the global majority. And um, the, the fact of the matter, it's our mess and we need to clean it up. And so I'm an artist and that's, that's my skill set. And so um, for the past seven years, I've been working really hard to use my skill um, to combat this institutionalized racism that I benefit from.
0: You know, I love the fact that you said global majority. Can you just elaborate on that? Because that's not a phrase that I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with. Our listeners might still be using language like minority. Um, and it's one that like for me, if you bring your fingers down a chalkboard, when I hear someone say minority or the minorities, I it's just like chalkboard for me. Why do you use global majority? Because I love it.
2: Um. Well i I read it somewhere. I, I'm a, I'm an avid reader. Um. And I heard somebody once use that statement, "People of the global majority," and I thought, "That's it. That's how we speak to this." I mean, you could say. BIPOC or you could say minority but we're it's still it almost always seems like exclusionary and less than and um the reality is like people who look like me are are not the global majority you know we we are not the main people taking over the earth (laughs) um and so we need to be put in our place too that um that 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 we are not the majority we have the majority of power currently um but but we are not the majority
1: so tell me so you said seven years ago you kind of started on this journey of telling that story what happened to you what what happened Inspired, kind of this seven-year journey as a as a white person, right? That said, this needs to be kind of the focus of my life's work.
2: Um, so it was actually a really um, distinct moment. Um, I have been doing a lot of reading and research on race. I have a, a multicultural family, um, and I was in my studio and this artist, Michael Ray Charles came to my studio and um, it was, it was such an honor. And at that time I was working at uh, building these big sculptural weavings out of like the detritus of my life. Um, And he said, we looked over the weavings and talked a little bit about my art. And then I wanted to talk about all the books I was reading. And, um, and so we we started talking about all my research and he goes, wait a minute, why does your artwork look like this when all of your research and your, your life, your family looks like that? And that was like my, oh shit moment. Um, because I knew in the back of my head that I needed to be talking about race, but I didn't know quite how to do that at the time and things were going really well for me in all honesty with the work I was doing um that that it took him like calling me out on it really to say okay then I have to start talking about race and and then how do I do that and so for me the only ethical way to do that was to look specifically at the white race and speak from the perspective of a white person um, and the way that white people benefit from the policies that have been put in place. So I put a a lot of um, uh, restrictions on myself for better or worse, because I want to make sure that what I'm doing um, is more helpful than harmful. um, And I'm doing things ethically um, and as a white person.
0: Yeah, I want to connect that uh research and that ethical approach. You you mentioned research and I know uh somewhere along the way you found uh, and, and you actually present in one of your collections the will of Mr. William Venable um which identified hundreds of enslaved humans as property and when I think about that global majority statement I think about the work that cartographers Uh, had done for like centuries where they tried their best to make Africa look like this small continent and Mm -hmm. other continents to be better, more significant. We, We have just been desensitized and we've been dumbed down in so many different ways and areas. But, but what did you feel when you found that will and who is William Venable?
2: He is my like great, 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 great-grandfather um one of those
0: greats pause 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 so i need people to hear that i knew it but i wanted you all to hear it because someone challenged kim to get her to think differently about what she was presenting right before that she said i wanted to be more helpful than harmful and now she's telling you who William Venable is. Kim, I promise, my dear, I'm not cutting you off. I needed that to just really land with people. Tell them again who William Venable is and take it away.
2: William Venable is my paternal great, 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 great grandfather. Um, and the interesting thing about this um, was, well, one of the interesting things as, as white people is that we actually have a history that's been documented. So I can actually go back and find documents from the 1700s, all the way back, because there is documentation of my family. And there has not been documentation of a lot of people that are of the diaspora. And, and when we think about who we are and where we came from, how important that is to have these connections to family. And I think that white people, A, take it for granted that they know their family lineage, and B, they um, if they go far back enough, they might not want to know their family lineage, lineage and then they try to distance themselves. But I think that it's very important to understand that my family owned 219 humans as their property. And the important thing about this document that pretty much what I did was I took a like a 13 colonies, um, like 1970s, 80s. Uh, a map like that, the the roll down kinds from our public school upbringing. Um, And then I hand cut out the last will and Testament of William Venable so that when light hit it, it, um, it puts shadows on the wall. So this like shadowed history um, that follows us. And what he did was he systematically went through and separated families. And um, Ta-Nehisi Coates mentioned this being one of the most violent acts of uh, enslavement. And I I thought um, that there was just like such a familial point that happened when reading this document, because he says people's names um, like, and I give my daughter Jack, and you know Mary's son or uh, Jill or whatever these different names, and breaks things down by name, breaks families apart, and then he, he says, and them and their heirs forever. So that knowledge that he is condoning uh, rape for the production of property, and so. I think these are really important histories to understand for white people. I was told growing up, the only thing that I was taught about slavery in my family growing up was that there were some distant relatives, like second cousins, something. Well, they had slaves, but they were good to their slaves. And that was it. And I think that that, that story is not, it's not my story. It's, it's a, uh, it's the American story. It's the white story of like, well, we were good to to our property, um, and it needs to be reckoned with. So,
1: that's that piece. <laughs> Family values, and and how how did that change you? Um, it didn't necessarily
2: change me. In all honesty. I've been doing this work for a long time. I think what was so interesting is that I never quite paid attention to my dad's side of the family. And we not only found out that the Venables owned humans, but that my maternal, my paternal, how's that go? My my dad's mother's side of the family and my dad's um dad's side of the family, that they owned humans as well. And that was, that was unknown. That wasn't even known to my, to my father. Um, And it kind of, we have these narratives that we tell ourselves about where we come from. And like on my dad's side of the family, I didn't know that there was any money there or this like long line lineage of owning humans and owning massive amounts of property throughout the United States. Um, because my grandfather didn't talk about anything and he was like a very frugal, quiet man. And, um, but that that's all there and it's all been documented.
0: You know, you actually just touched on something and Jay, did you have a question? Cause, cause I see your face, like you are a gasp right now. And, and I think you're that way. I'm, 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 I'm guessing, but I think you're that way because this is revealing. It's intimate. The proximity is there, even though Kim is going back generations, that proximity, that, that ability to tell that story is something that we are feeling in this particular moment. And, and so I don't want to steal that away from you. If you, if you have something that you wanted to say.
1: No, I I, I'm processing. I think that's just so much to take in. And I thank you for for telling that story. And I guess I would ask one other question, because I, I know you're a mom. How does that impact how you raise your children or how you talk about your family to make sure that your, your kids understand the lineage and the importance of understanding their place in the world as, as white people.
2: So this is where things get, um, even a little bit more complicated. Um, my, my children are not my biological children. I have an open adoption. So my children are actually black. Um, oh, their okay. mother. Yeah. Um, they're, we have, yeah, we have had them since birth. Uh, they are now 11 and nine. They have the same biological mother and, um, and yeah, it's like, it's, it's even more complicated. In a lot of ways, wow. what I'm doing, I'm doing this because I love my children fiercely. And because I love my children fiercely, I, I want to protect them the best way I know how. And the way to protect them as a white woman is to help white people understand that this system has been rigged for them and that it's their job to help dismantle it. So that's the best way that I know that I can take care of my children. Um, How they interpret the work I do. Um, they're getting older so sometimes that they sometimes they have questions that they want to know the answers to sometimes they don't want to know the reason why I'm doing certain pieces um, they're taking it in in their own way I guess. Um, I don't know if that was clarifying to your answer though. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, it your was... question. I'm sorry. What was your question?
1: <laughs> no, it How was, does my it was... work
2: affect my children?
1: <laughs> no. How, how does that knowledge of your family history um, impact the way that you look at raising mm-hmm. your children, which I yeah. I think that you've answered, um, you know, with something that's even more complicated and challenging and, um emotional i think for you as mm-hmm. as a mom to protect your your young black children so that's that's a perfect answer
0: yeah it really is and i don't i honestly you know you just you you you're sharing in that response around william venable it it totally took the uh conversation in the direction that i was not so much so planning to hit. I wanted to hit it in a different way, but I'm going to hit it this way, especially because you, you've you revealed your, your children. I didn't want to talk about, I took that out for a reason, but you brought them back in. And so because of that, how do you feel about all of this railing against critical race theory? Because in large part, the people that are up in arms across the country are the parents of children your age they don't want crt which they've already conflated to be crt we we, we we've, we've talked about that a little bit just in general kim how do you as a white woman feel about all of this crt conversation um let me see what you say to that and, and we'll determine how we <laughs> oh
1: my god
0: sh- first I don't, of all how we, how we get out of here alive how we, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there no. we go. There we go. There um, we go. Yeah.
1: Yes. So
2: so we're not teaching critical race theory. We're not even barely touching anything of it, even in our universities. So the idea that anybody is teaching critical race theory in the public school system is just absurd. So they're fighting about about something that doesn't even exist in our school systems. So I just like that should end the conversation, but it's not because we live in a world that's upside down now where facts don't matter um, and truth doesn't matter. Um, but I, okay. I'm going to give you an example. So I'm, first of all, I'm also a public school teacher. I I taught public school, um, for, I taught in the high school for six years. Um, I taught, I have also been a university professor and then I also have taught in, um, at my children's elementary school for a, like a year and a half. I taught there. Um, You have to fight against so many things to have representation in your school that is accurate to what, to the global majority. And I fight tooth and nail for this because this is my children. My children need to be represented in my school. So that means that the books that they're looking at, the imagery on the walls, um, all those things need to be taken into consideration. Equity in the classrooms. So critical race theory, <laughs> I would love it. I would I, I would be amazed and like send my kid to the first school that had that. But the reality is, is that it doesn't exist and we're far from getting there. And we need to do very simple things um, such as, you know, first of all, giving money to... <laughs> Public school systems to begin with, um, not having our our property taxes connected to our school system, um, but also just like okay, for example, when I taught art, um, when I taught art in in uh, high school, I taught that in the state of Oklahoma, and um, the first thing I would say was name all the artists that you know. This is like the first, and then it, it would usually be like. You know, Picasso, Matisse, you know, these kind of main names. And then I'd say, what do all these people have in common? And after a really long way of getting there, we all figured out that they were white men. And then I could go on and say, all right, why are these considered the masters? You know, and what does this narrative tell us? And then now going forward, I am going to actively throughout the school year, I would actively teach on artists from various races, ethnicities, abilities and socioeconomic backgrounds and countries. So but that was me working very hard and throwing the other curriculum out the window to be able to give students the ability to see themselves in the artists that we were talking about. In my student school, my kids' school, we started a diversity and equity committee where we actually went into classrooms to figure out where the problems were and create data-driven analysis to be able to deal with some of those problems. And a lot of that is like just basic representation. If you go into a classroom and all the imagery is white people on the walls, then you are living, leaving out a huge group of humans that are not seeing themselves represented. And then you can go on to the fact that like the majority of uh, people, teachers in the field are white women. How does white women's bias affect all the students in their classes I mean, I don't know. I could go down a rabbit hole with this and talk to you about it for hours and hours. But the reality is, if there was critical race theory, I'd be all about it. But it doesn't exist in our public school system. And so the fact that people are fighting and arguing about this is just um,
1: is just absurd. So I've been on the website. I've been looking at some of your pieces that I really like. Safety Net, Richmond, um, Whiteness yeah. is probably the one that I love the most. Yeah. And I know sometimes for Torin and I, it's hard to to kind of stay positive, stay out of the negativity. How do you do that while you kind of chase all of this inspiration and and build it and shape it into this beautiful piece of work? Mm.
2: Okay, so, well, to go back to this moment when Michael Ray Charles asked me why my work didn't focus on race. um, And I, I white, uh, whiteness, um, white side, which is that big 20 foot by 11 foot, um, woven magazine panel that splits up a gallery. Um, that piece was the piece that first, like was probably the second piece that came after that when I first started working in, um, on the white race. And, um, I think the most important thing about that and in terms of when you talk about like, how do you not get bogged down and all the negativity is that um, I was reading all these books. I was getting so much information, constant, constant information. um, And there was nowhere for me to put it. It was just staying inside me. The ability to make something is a way to get it outside of myself as a coping mechanism. I'm not going to lie. I think that that's like a really big part of it. Um, You know, you can get this information out of you in a lot of different ways. You can have podcasts, you can do lectures, you can write books. I just happen to be an artist. And so I'm making art about it. Um, I'm also very um, material based And I do work that's very, um, arduous and repetitive, um, methodical, all the rigorous, all those words. Um, and, and a lot of times it's straight up not fun. It is not fun for me to do the work that I do. Not necessarily, um, at times it's content. A lot of times it's just the making of it itself is just, you know, physically painful. Um, But, but I'm compelled to do it. I mean, I liken it to a calling, um, that, that I feel called to this work. And if I could do something different, I would. But unfortunately, I am compelled or called to do this work, um, in terms of, like, getting the ideas, uh, I'll get, like, certain, um, like, like a, a sentence or something in a book will really resonate with me or a word. You talked about the safety net uh, Richmond. Um, there was also the safety net Baltimore. Those pieces were the actual redlining maps of Richmond and Baltimore, but they were made out of zip ties. Um, that piece came from me constantly... It was actually, I, I work out at a place that has like a, a, a mesh net on the ceiling because like I think they play, they play sports in there and stuff. And so when I'm doing different sorts of like sit-ups and stuff, I'm staring up at this massive net. And so that was happening in my life at the time. And then simultaneously, um, I'm thinking about these safety nets that white people have because of generational wealth, um, because of... Uh, their uh, familial and neighborhood and work-related, all these resources and contacts, um, those sort of safety nets that we can access. Um, A great example was the fact that, like, when I was in Katrina during New Orleans and my um, partner, now husband at the time, he and I both had zero money in our bank account, zero gas in our car, but we were able to escape Katrina. Why? Because we had a middle-class parent that was in the city that had access to money in a car. And then we had middle-class, my middle-class parents in Oklahoma that could give us a place to stay and a way to start over those resources because of generational wealth, because we were white, because we could access my family and his family could access mortgages because of redlining. Um, all these things accumulate, so I have a safety net. Even though I was broke, I I had resources. So, or the safety net of like food, like or or um, or school or everything. I mean, it's all linked together, right? So, I'm thinking about this: the safety net, the safety net, the safety net, over and over. And then I just go into um, Lowe's and start walking the, um, hardware store, just walking, thinking this in my head, I see these zip ties. I'm like, there's something here. There's something here. What's here. What is this? And so I get some, I go home, I move them around. I'm working with them in different ways. And then it dawns on me. I can just use the zip ties themselves. <laughs> um, and so I built the whole red lining map, uh, which is those colors, uh, blue, green, yellow, and red of Baltimore and of Richmond using those little zip ties. So not only are you talking about um, a safety net, not only are you talking about segregating spaces because the way you can break it up into a space, You're not only talking about building materials and home ownership because it's connected back to like electrical is done with zip ties in your home. But you're also now talking about policing and how we police neighborhoods um, because of the way that zip ties are used by the police. So there's something about the materiality of things um, or what is happening in my life that kind of all accumulates um, to become to become some sort of object
0: you know um i gotta tell you we do something here on the show um a segment called her voice and what julie and i decided that we would do in the month of december is we would let our guest talk about women that have inspired them and so you are more than welcome uh, Kim to to address that uh, because we are putting you a bit on the spot but I just want to say to you that you've inspired me and that this oh, week if, if I were to pull a, a voice or a name down of a woman that's making moves that's doing some things that are aspirational that are intellectual that are stimulating challenging that in this conversation you literally, I mean, literally have inspired me like it's just the language that you use. It's the approach that you take towards this complex scenario of race. It's the responsibility that you are holding on to. You are married to. I think if people go back and listen, when they replay this pod, they'll hear you say, how in doing some of your installations it's actually painful working with some of the materials are painful yet you have submitted to your calling so i just truly appreciate what you've done uh you can find her on social media ig that is kim rice artist Uh, Again, Kim Rice Artist You can find her on the web, KimRice.net But I'm going to just shut up and turn it over to you Julie, uh, let's do it differently I'm going to let you end the show today Like literally, I'm going to let you take it from here I don't think people need to hear my voice I want them to hear you all's wonderful, beautiful voices
1: Thank you, Kim Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us one of the most thoughtful interviews um, that I think we've had this season and we've had a lot of really thoughtful interviews. So thank you. Um, Are you going to be anywhere with out in Baltimore or New York or anywhere with displays? Uh, Yeah, I currently have work up with Jeffrey Kent
2: in Chelsea, um, New York, uh, at, I think it's 120s. I'm gonna mess up the address, but you can go to um, beingblackbeingwhite.com, and um, uh, we had uh, duo solo exhibitions up in New York, and we've kind of morphed them into a single space now, um, and they're they're in the Chelsea. Um, you can see them there. Uh, I just moved into. Well, I just moved. I will be moving after this podcast. Um, into my new studio um, and working on some bigger pieces. Uh, Don't have any specific lineups right now coming up. I'm just trying to crank out some work uh, toward the end of this, this season to get ready for
1: 2022. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe and to find your voice like Kim has found her voice. Be a better human. Let's focus on creating better culture, teams, and workplaces in 2022 and beyond. For now, Torin and I are ghosts.